does fear mean to you? A dark and stormy night? Werewolves. Are you afraid of the dark? Cause that drive themselves. You mean a Tesla? No. Evil cause that drive themselves. They run on blood and the souls of children. Yeah, that kind of sounds like a Tesla. All these things are terrifying, but there is only one thing scarier. Scarier than a cocaine addiction. And that is this awful episode of Death by BBB. All about the work of Stephen King on film, part two. episode recorded yet. And now, from a haunted cornfield, somewhere in May. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is the human equivalent of the Stephen King ending. It's Hank. Again, I'm non-existent. No, you just suck. Ah, well, I take that. That's true. Welcome to Death by DVD, the second part of the Stephen King something, something, something spectacular. Spectacular. Yeah. We're celebrating Halloween the right way by cramming as much Stephen King down your throat as humanly possible. Gross. Some people might like that. Some people could have a ferret man fetish. <laughs> Is he a ferret man? Yeah, I think looks he looks like, like an otter. A sexy otter. A sexy otter? Yes. You're definitely going to pretense it that Stephen King is a sexy otter. I have, I have a thing for lazy eyes. All right. So welcome to the second part of our Stephen King thing. It's Halloween. It's October. What's spookier than a cocaine addiction? <laughs> a man with billions of dollars in a cocaine addiction. And then he gets hit by a car. Mm, the Stephen Dream King Catcher. story. I love you so much, Dreamcatcher. It's just such a quality film. There's just something about Oxycontin that makes a story, I don't know, dreamy. So did and you watch anything this week? In the blocks, he finds out he's an alien, actually. And uh, yeah, okay, never mind. What? Did I see something this week? Donnie Wahlberg is an alien. Donnie D with the backup. So come up with the crack up. Okay. Uh, I watched this week since we got into a bit of a Ken Russell kind of a, a run there. Um, I rewatched Lair of the White Worm. A lot of people are not a fan of Lair of the White Worm. They say, you know, it's it's Ken Russell light. It's when he stopped giving a shit. Um, I would have to say I like that. that. I've never heard that before, but I, I would say that is sort of appropriate. It's, it's kind of it's not like it's more like a cigarette Ken Russell light, though. It's not like a beer. It's not less the calories. It just doesn't taste the same. It still is bad for you. Like, it's still yeah. got all the things that make Ken Russell Ken Russell inside of that movie. Like, I think he did not care about the story he was telling about snake people and this ancient mythical snake creature slash worm um, and the Bram Stoker wraparound story which is not really applicable to this film at all particularly but um, it's kind of derived from some of those legends 
what I would but say it's is definitely given credit as being written by oh, yes. Stoker. Like that's Most all definitely. over the goddamn movie. Because they they want the fucking title. Um, but really, like Ken, Rus- there's a lot of Ken Russell in that movie in places because it's highly sexual at times, and also there's a lot of weird dream sequences and like hallucination sequences that he did. Like he actually did a technique with because he used like video editing. And used a lot of like weird blue screen and like really kind of arted it up, made it look super arty and kind of different. And I think overall, I mean, he made kind of an interesting film that's again highly sexual. And I'm all for British horror films to get over overly sexual at times. And Hugh Grant kills a giant snake. I mean, who wouldn't want to see this movie? But overall, I think it's it's better than its legend has let out to be but it's still not a great movie it's definitely one of ken russell's weakest films i would seem to say it's weaker than uh uh was gothic and gothic is not a great film in itself either i don't think personally it's got a lot of personality but it's not your typical it's not the right personality no it's not ken russell's personality I just don't think he has much interest in horror, like supernatural horror, and this is definitely like a supernatural or, you know, mythical creature and monsters type thing. I just don't think that's where his wheelhouse is. I mean, I mean Tommy the, can even be kind of thought of as a horror movie, but it's more yeah, horrifying than anything. Way. I mean, I think he has an interest in horror. I just don't think he has an interest in like non-man-made horror particularly like man being the villain and all his other pieces for the most part uh that's the lure with the devils itself though is the movie comes off as this possession piece and it's pre-exorcist and it's horrifying and it's just a story about men it's about men and power and greed and the assumption that men make with power greed and all of those things and that's horrifying stephen king is capable of doing that as we discussed on the last show we were talking about Cujo and Night Flyer the tall grass thinner a lot of stories about people coming to terms with who they are and acting upon that whether it's good or bad this week I think we have a lot of the same but we got some rat bats and uh, we got some cars that drive themselves and some werewolves this is a fun week I'm happy for this week. Last week was dreadful. <laughs> La- last this week, week is still was a- pretty dreadful. Well, you know what? One thing that makes this week a lot better than last week is there are no Pintos, and there are... I think there's some dead kids, but not... It's not going to be as bad. Possibly. Possibly. So do you want to get this... Do you want to kickstart or kickstart my heart? Kickstart Stephen King's heart? Maybe we shouldn't do that. He's kind of old. We don't want to kickstart anything. <laughs> oh, I forgot my weekly scene, didn't I? We have oh, to you, you didn't do your recently... Oh, so recently I watched, outside of some Stephen King movies, a movie that's got two titles, Atrocious or Atroz from 2015, directed by Lex Ortega. I know a lot of you on the underground have followed and been a fan of Lex for a few years. I think he's a pretty interesting guy. Essentially, this is uh, the Mexican August Underground movie. It's an ultra-violent film that's placed through a camera being found by a police detective after a traffic stop. Goes through the camera. They've got the two guys in the traffic stop, so it cuts between the police torturing them to get answers for what's on the tape and then them showing us what's on the tape. Tapes that include a young son being raped by his own father for being a homosexual, so he turns around and attaches a camera to a dildo and barbed wire, makes his own mother sodomize his father while filming it, then fucks his sister and kills her. Charm this is one of those things if you read um, Deep it's like, Red is Magazine. This a Christmas movie, Hank? 
Sure. It, yeah, just just like Child's Play, it's a Christmas movie. Uh, this is something that's interesting if you were a fan of Deep Red Magazine. I like to sit back and watch modern films and wonder if Chaz Ballon would have been a fan of them or not. And it has a message. It's got not an ultra-violent point for the sake of being ultra-violent, although it does, like August Underground, have quite a lot of crude scenes there's i mean even a, a shit play scene so i mean if you're into copophilia maybe this will be up your alley it wasn't specifically oh fantastic. it's a boundary stretcher is it That's oh yeah it's a boundary stretcher but is it for the sake of violence and i don't think it draws is a movie that's violent for the sake of violence i think it tells a story albeit a bit of a crude story i find it interesting and i like watching lex ortega's work i think that he's a shining star of a lot of the underground scenes this has a bit of a bigger budget than a lot of the other August underground type movies, I guess, just to call them and to coin a phrase with that. But uh, I'll give it two. It's got great effects. It looks okay. It's it, if you're really into pushing boundaries and ultra violence, if you're still really, really into gore and you want to find something shocking, this has something. Not something particularly <laughs> for me. I mean, I'm not going to give it a positive or a negative. I'll give it two stars completely and two cult points, and it's worth finding. You can find it on Tubi right now if you're into streaming, but it's a recent movie. It's not from 1932 or by Nicholas Rogue, so I've changed, okay? You, you can't keep it up. Yeah, you can't keep saying I'm picking weird old movies. This is from 2015, and it's easily accessible to you freaks out there on the Internet. All right, so I guess we'll get into the depth of the uh, show. Getting into is, the meat. This, oh, God, the meat. Which is random Stephen King movies, which is what we've been doing. Because anybody, anybody at all, can go like and pick the good stuff. Let's, you know, let's talk about things like The Stand and Tommy you know, Duckers and The Langoliers, all those great movies. Everybody also could just make a completely random list and get stuck with it and deal with it. <laughs> Which is what we did, exactly. Let's, let's like, we can tell the audience what they could have gotten, because you had several different ideas that were much better than this, and we ended up going with the easiest. A lot of work. Yeah, we, we went, hey, let's do what's easy. Our fans don't deserve much. And, um, you know, buy a couple shirts, guys. Maybe we'll do the hard roots next time. Your idea initially is we were going to do uh, all, a whole show of all, all of them, all the Stephen King made-for-TV movies, which that is one hell of a feat because, what, we're looking at 48, 50 hours with a Stephen yeah, King? There's a lot of hours. Yeah, I mean, most of these are averaging six hours per miniseries. Let's even just look at the new Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rose Red. What else can we throw in? Uh, the Stand. We're at 24 hours right there. So <laughs> a great idea in theory, but mama mia, what a spicy, thick pizza pie. So you got a complete random list of Stephen King movies. And uh, here we are. Here we are. Number one on uh, this new episode. This There's is no numbers because they're all random. They're not I even in like historical order. I'll give this as number one because this is where we're starting it off. I have this dumb idea in my head that when people listen to Death by DVD, they go find the movies and, you know, marathon it or try and watch it if they've not heard of, of what they are. So number one on my hypothetical marathon list, Graveyard Shift from 1990 by Ralph S. Singleton, who we decided or not decided we found out before the show has been a prominent director of two episodes of Cagney and Lacey and the Graveyard Shift. <laughs> well, let me tell you my story about Graveyard Shift. Song. They were two great episodes of Cagney and Lacey, by the way. I did see this in the theater and I hated it. 
and I've watched it several times over the years, and it's never really gotten any better. Was it your 52nd birthday? It was, actually was somebody's birthday. It was a birthday pick. I was just calling um, you old because this movie came out in 1990, and I'm sure people listening to this weren't even born yet. It was somebody's 12th birthday. But um, go see Grey or Shift, and like I had read the story before, and I knew it was about rats and basically a giant rat. This is one of those Stephen King movies that the story is one hell of a lot more interesting than the movie. Like, there's like five... I beg to differ. I think the fucking movie's better than the story, personally. I I love the movie, but there was different types of rats, and he had the queen rat and the albinos and the legless ones that at least had more sense. Like, they get to the underground part of the warehouse, and they're all underground rats. It's not just a giant bat rat. But I love the bat rat. I worship the bat rat. I I, I, it's my friend. I called him before the show. I love the bat rat. Don't get me wrong. Bat rat. Uh, I think the special effects on the giant bat are pretty good, but I think overall what does make bat this rat. work is they were able to write interesting characters and hire appropriate actors to play those characters. For Andrew Divoff rules. Like, he does a, an adequate job in the film. I think uh, Stephen Mock probably is the best actor in the film. Doing oh, yeah. Crazy main accent the entire time. and just I forgot we were doing this. We were supposed to do main accents for the whole show. I forgot. Because no, it's we're great. Not doing the main I'm okay. that shit off right now. Can but, I do um, Ted Levine again? Can I, can I maybe just do that for a little while with Ted Levine? I thought it was yeah. good. I thought I was good at Ted Levine. You know, it's not fair. Right? I never not, get to speak to not particularly good at it, but... Um, right, whatever, fine. You you can't do impersonations. You can't one-up me. It's not like you can do a better Ted Levine. I've never tried. I see about a size 12, a great big fat... You're too audible. Uh, I can barely understand what Ted Levine says most of the time. You're too big fat, but I'm Ted Levine now. Okay, how about now? I don't know. I don't know what voice you're trying to do at this point. All right, fuck it. All right. Well, okay, Andrew Divoff has a cool voice, but I can't do an impersonation. But, yeah, no, Stephen... I can do a Wishmaster. (laughs) Can you? All you have to do is do Batman from the new movies. No, you have to twist your words. Make your wish. Mine was better. Okay, sure. I'll give it to you. Can you do Stephen Bach, though, getting back on subject, as uh, Foreman Warwick, one of the greatest asshole characters in movie history? He is a dick in the movie. And from the beginning, a- from, like, his first entrance, you know, oh, okay, we got the asshole. There he is. He's really good, but by far the best performance is, of course, Brad Dorif, who's just given it both barrels in this Come on, Moxie! Little part. Get him, Moxie! Very little part um, of just an exterminator, and he has one great monologue scene where he fucking balls his eyes out, and he's very intense in the movie. And he's probably the shining star in what is this movie, because it's ultimately about nothing. It's about a fucking mill, a textile mill in Maine overrun by rats and a giant bat creature that's killing people in, like, in the mill and in the town. So the story's shit. It's a Stephen King story that they've rewritten to try to give it some other story. But really, it's about nothing. But the characters and the atmosphere that is created in this film really do make it work on a certain level for me. Because, um, like, the story itself is just not that engaging, but it's made engaging by someone like Brad Dorf having his monologue by Stephen Long just being overtly dickish the entire movie. It just it's really rich and brimming with character and that's the one right, saving like grace Brogan, of the film, I think. Like Vic Palizzo's character Brogan nonstop is just this obnoxious fat 
relief character, but at the same time, there's no no one's redeeming. Every well, I mean, you've got um, you got the stranger, David Andrews, John Hall. He's the only redeemable character in Kelly Wolf's uh, Wisconsin or whatever her Carrie Jane Wisconsin, I think her character's name was. Everyone else is just an unrepentant dick. And um, the Brad Dourif scene, just like some of the stuff that even he pulls out of his ass and says, is somewhat laughable. But the way he's delivering it, my favorite part was, uh, you know what a VC rat eats. It eats raw American. Hold the mayo. Thank you. And it's just his style. Like, all right. Okay. Yeah, that seems he like Brad Dorf, like, spiced that up himself. It seems like Brad Dorf, like, well, hey, let me rewrite some of this dialogue. You got to look at even the mannerisms, though, that he flips the chair backward. And he's he is a former Vietnam. He's a character. Yeah, he's a former an actual character. Yeah, he's a Vietnam vet, and he flips the chair backward. He's got this, you know, this whole thing. You want a cigarette? No, nah, I quit for the old lady with just so much chew in his mouth that you, like, Duras' lip is sticking out. He's got chew all over it. He sits down and is spitting in this old cup and just the, the wet-on-wet sound, the sound editing. This has got a charm to it. Like, Graveyard Shift out of the majority of Stephen King movies. I The, the story that it's based on kind of ends shortly with this overwhelming, like, Lovecraft. It's more of a Lovecraft kind of thing. Like, they lead you to believe the rest of the workers are going to come down and find this big cellar with the rat queen and this whole mess as to where the movie has redemption for what's going on with the characters. The evil gets punished. The good guy lives. It still kind of falls short because Wisconski dies, but overall you're not left wondering like it's a rat bat. If you want to know what happens, there's a rat bat like in the story. They lead you to believe that this, underground cellar has been locked off for so long that they've you know bred turned into these hyper rats or whatever in this movie you see there's underwater graveyards it's very off reach a lot of people can't get to it bat rat grew there's bat rat now it's rat it's bat it's like cat dog it's one thing it's bat rat yes i mean like the like the story is just literally nothing but you know it's bat rat that's the story a level of richness with his characters and with the um, just the production design alone because everything looks grimy, everything looks filthy as shit, everything looks really hot, everybody's sweating. Well, I mean, you've so. worked a labor job, you've worked a, a legitimate roll up your sleeve, get sweaty, had your ass kicked job, and you know how it looks. It does nothing is clean when you go home. Even the lens, like if life could be seen through a lens of a camera, is greasy. Your glasses, for say, let's say you wear glasses, greasy. This just has that sheen to it, and everything seems appropriate to the point that the fourth wall is so strong, you become one of the characters. There's a scene where one of the guys sticks his arm in a hole in the background. God, I love saying that. Bat rat bites it off and everyone abandons him and he's just screaming and the sound design has him screaming in the background as they're moving forward into the darkness through this tunnel. And you feel it. You feel like you just left that guy and you kind of feel like an asshole for doing it as the characters move on. Then uh, Andrew Divoff's character has a breakdown and Stephen Mock leaves him. And while he's having the breakdown, you feel bad for him because Bat Rat gets him. And that works. You have this design that makes it that you are part of the story. It's like one of those books you read as a kid where you can get to page 12 and either go to 16 or 20 to pick what happens. Yeah. You really feel like you're a part of graveyard shift. Like you've been hired for this. Like you've been a part of this grimy design and it just is so, I don't know, kitsch that it works to its own. Like it's a fucking bat rat. I love it. Bat (laughs) rat. It's just so silly. I think it's flawed as a narrative. Oh, voice, absolutely. But. but still, out of like all of the stuff that we have laid on the table on the first episode to now, Bat Rat, 
I'm driving this one home. It's got a beginning, a middle, and end, and it's, it's all well made movie that has a lot of love and tender care for a story that is just dumb as fuck. And that, and a lot of the time, if you just put the, the put the effort and the work in, you can make a movie that is still enjoyable to watch, even though your story is a, like a bag of dicks. It, sometimes it doesn't matter. I'll watch Graveyard Shift again. I'll watch it over that because Pets, the remake of Pet Cemetery, doesn't have any of that. It feels like a Hollywood production of like and a, a quick version of that story. Even it just it just kind of glances over all the atmosphere and just really wants to get to the meaty details. And this is well, there's there are no real meaty details in Graveyard Shift. The acting is the meaty detail. Well, that's something we didn't really talk about last time that is a deep part of the Stephen King universe and mythos is the atmosphere that for a a good chunk of his stories and his universe for all intents and purposes is just atmosphere. I mean, that's what he most, I mean, that's the same thing with Lovecraft, but Lovecraft was, well, Lovecraft had an atmosphere atmosphere and create dread like, well, through his mythos and stuff. And Stephen King would like to be associated with Lovecraft. He would like to, but he Stephen certainly King has his own mythos. Himself. It's self-imposed. Yeah, let's say, I mean, Stephen King took 50 years or so to make this empire of his own mythos as to where Lovecraft was able to do it in an incredibly short period of time, specifically like by... five. Well, and he was more or less, I mean, his longest story, if I'm correct, is um, The Mountains of Madness, his novella. And that's, you know, the, the majority of length you know that's really the longest thing he did that even reanimator is like 15 pages so he kept very small universes and still managed to make it absolutely you know mind-numbingly huge as to where king takes it and does a 900 page story and then makes a universe out of it to defend his own actions by doing things and that i mean if you have the ability to do it fine i'm not trying to shit on his art for the way he does it but it just becomes unrelenting where things don't have an ending or the ending is well it's in a different universe from this one so you got to take that into consideration all right that's okay but well, graveyard shift doesn't really focus in that way because this is just i mean again you brought up last time Stephen king kind of well he writes like ec comics before. yeah it's, it's like when it's exploitation it usually turns out way better than truly trying to take. And this is seriously. this is deeply treated as an exploitation piece. Yes, this is handled as a ridiculous fable like tale, and it's obviously like it's, it's a horror story. We're just but know, it's not handled like trash. Wrong. It's not handled like a Forty Second Street. You'll see this before a porn or a midnight movie. It actually has a little bit of story and class to try and dress it up so it's presentable. So I mean, this is an exploitation video movie. This is a. Uh, you could watch this with your grandparents or your uncle kind of movie because it's cheesy and it's unrelenting, but it's not incredibly over the top. It's not like it full could, G.I. Gore. It could stand. That'd be a little bit more over the top, I think. I think it could stand with a little bit more. Oh, violence. yeah. It needed a lot more bat rat violence. The first like three or four deaths are mostly off screen. A lot of the times you just get bat rat like hugging somebody. Yeah, I want to see the whole fucking nine yards. If you're going to throw me a bat rat, I want to see the... God, I love saying bat rat. I got to stop. We got to move on or I'm just going to keep... The whole show is just going to be a loop of me going bat rat. <laughs> well, I mean, I think we've said all there is to say about Grey or Shift. I'd say it's one that you definitely need to check out. We're still doing ratings. Oh, yeah, let's rate this bad boy. I would give it about a three and maybe a three or four. I'll give it a higher cult point than a full rating. As a movie, it leaves a lot to ask for. So it's a two and a three. 
All right. Well, we're around the same around the same numbers on most of these, actually. So, would I be Siskel or would I be Ebert, or would you be Siskel, or would I well, be Cooper? I'm the one dying of cancer. Yeah, like I, <laughs> I have a lit cigarette in my hand. <laughs> I am sorry about your diagnosis, by the way. Uh, the first I've heard of it, but rip. Oh, the next movie is We Need a New Host for Death by DVD, apparently. Nash is dying. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on, 1985, the second movie by Louis Teague on this double whammy of a Stephen King special, Cat's Eye. I think Cat's Eye is a pretty okay anthology film disguised as not an anthology film. Um, I think the beginning, I think all the cat stuff until you get to the end is really kind of dumb. Like you could show somebody and just ask, do you think Dino DeLaurentiis made this? Yes or no. And you're going to say, yeah. Yes. You know, so yes. And it's funny, like a production company to have so much integrity over a style that you can, you know, fluently say like, oh, Dino did this bad boy. And just like Mustafa Akkad had that same kind of vibe, too. You could tell when it well, especially because it said Halloween in the title. And you so you knew it was Mustafa Akkad. But, you know, that was a bad example. But Dino just uh, there's something really interesting about Dino's relationship with Stephen King and George Romero and some of the products that these guys put out all around the same time that this kind of fits in. And I find it really fun to watch something like creep show day of the dead and cat's eye all together and it's just got a really nice feeling to it that it's complete and it looks great like this has a nice look to it and it's filmed really cool and james woods is in it well like i by far i think the first story works the best quitters inc with james woods trying to quit smoking it kind of one of the most faithful like that well just rewatching it the last few days uh i guess if you've not discerned from listening to death by dvd i'm a bit of a heavy smoker and i've always fantasized about being able to quit this story constantly sticks out of my mind i think this is from the night shift the night stephen shift, king's night shift yeah and um you know uh, stephen king prior to this was being published in playboy and hustler and a lot of different magazines and i don't remember the first time i read this but it was right around when i had started smoking as a teenager and it has never left my mind of you know because the guy even says in the story i wife in a room well he even though one of the guys at the very beginning says to james wood's character it's just really really hard and he's got this you know frumpled beaten up horrible looking wife that's obviously just been run through the ringers and you know he's turning and defensively looking at james woods and he says i've been smoking since i was 16 it's really hard to quit that's when i started smoking so it sticks out constantly and then when you sit down and you get through that first sequence where he takes his cigarettes and he bashes them up on the table and they show them the room and the cat is jumping which is awful to watch on the you know little electric steps and going through the torture if you're a smoker you realize like oh this is real and you've got that like dread of not being able to have your cigarettes and the it's almost a challenge i couldn't watch this entire first segment without pausing it to go out and smoke that it made me so tense <laughs> thinking about quitting i'm like oh my god i gotta i gotta go smoke one because he can't <laughs> it took me an hour and 40 minutes to watch this segment of the movie until i could get through the rest part because i had to take so many smoke breaks well i think it's kind of expertly handled and i think it is very much based on the story i mean it's pretty much word for word and what cat's eye is missing for the most part is it does have a very made for tv look uh it's a pg-13 movie for one um i think the second segment in theory is a really cool idea and at times it can be really good but robert hayes is completely miscast um i think it gets a little ridiculous at times but i like the second segment is 
ledge. The building walk, yeah. Which, that's odd. That's my favorite part of the movie, and I find to be one of the most unwatchable parts of the movie, that going back, we discussed last week, Gerald's Game, and I pretense that. This is going to be my most negative review, and I think I spoke uh, higher of it than anything else. The anxiety just drives me crazy. I'm very claustrophobic, and just that idea, it's not even the, the height, it's him having to walk across that ledge and hugging it just drives me crazy, and then that fucking pigeon comes... Ah, the bird. And then the asshole with the horn and spraying him. That just that drives me crazy and that pushes all my buttons. So I find that to be probably the most enjoyable because my buttons are pushed. I fully got the experience of art here because I was horrified, terrified. I got anxiety. I wanted to stop watching, but I couldn't start. And there's fun nods like we've mentioned the Stephen King universe. This movie is ridiculous with it. The cat is almost run over by Christine at one point. Uh, she's chased by Cujo. Well, it's I don't know if it's a boy or girl. I think it's named General, but... So he is chased by Cujo at one point. There's another fun nod in this. Oh, no, this is the exact segment. They're reading the penthouse, or there's an issue of the penthouse that this story was published in for the first time on the table. But I don't know. I really enjoyed the penthouse sequence just because of the tension behind it, and I like the moral of that story. Again, it's fun funny because it's the moral I've hated through everything else but in a short sequitur I think it's a lot better yeah, you know because see comics he works as little segments he doesn't well, work you don't have story most of the time when you have time to get to know these people like with thinner we had an issue with the development with that because the character is unredeemable by the end of the movie but you got 90 minutes dealing with this asshole in this instance okay I know this guy's a former tennis player and this guy's somehow connected to the mob and is into bets makes him walk around the building he's pissed off Let's not leave out that his girlfriend's head gets cut off. So he makes the guy walk around the building again. You got a beginning, a middle, and end, and it just stops. You're good. That's perfect in the Stephen King universe. It's not 900 pages and no one gangbangs a child at the end of it. I love it. And by far, I'd say like the last segment where the cat actually comes into play and it's facing a goblin troll. Um, that segment is not very good, but the special effects in it are fucking amazing. Carlo Rimbaldi, was it not? I think so. He designed the little troll creature. I'm just more talking about the the uh, the raised sets, the ones uh, like because yeah, I mean specifically, what I would like to mention is where the troll gets up onto the bed and puts his hand over Drew Barrymore's nose, and her mouth opens, and it's just flawless, especially for the era that this came out with. You can see that it's cut and, and how it's done, and it's I mean, done similar. The blue screen is real wonky throughout the movie, but like I think just. To the way to make this troll look small and use the the enlarged sets and things like that is really really well done. Um, well, you know, you had something like that um, the Stephen Dorff movie we talked about a few weeks ago that was shot very similar to this, and and a big aspect with how many creatures are in that movie. It works, but with this one one on one, and like when it comes out of the wall and it opens up, it has this um, like grim fairy tale feeling of just absolute enchantment. What bothers me the most about this, I think, is just the characterization. The father doesn't seem to be neither here nor there. No one seems to be actually there. Like they're just vacant ideas of a family, and we just had to put the blame on somebody, which is typical of Stephen King. Let's just make the mom a bitch. So we have an asshole. It's either a male or a female. In this case, the mother is the asshole, and that's just an archetype of they're an it's asshole. It's not much of a story at all. It's about like cats steal breath. Well, in actuality, cats have never stolen breath. There are trolls that live in your wall. That it's just an ending, I think, out of every. Like we have to. In this, it's and they basically started that way. like 
I, I don't know how they wrote the script, but it's like, how do we get these two Stephen King stories? And I guess we'll tie this in with some weird cat thing that we've got going. Uh, so it just, I think it, like, the tie in was, I, I think the big tie in here is, you know what? Uh, Dino liked working with children, not children, but he liked working with Drew Barrymore. And they, they I mean, cause this was shot in the same place as Firestarter. They yeah, shot probably. this in the same town. They wanted to use Drew again. They needed to have, and you know access to this, so they shot this, and because it, it doesn't really make sense, the beginning of the movie starts with the cat going down the street in New York and sees Drew Barrymore out of the doll, and then not the doll, the mannequin, and it just moves to this like, where's Waldo adventure of the cat getting fucked over until finally it somewhat gets happiness. Well, this is like the peak of Stephen King exploitation when everybody was trying to get Stephen King's name on top of their movie because uh, there are tons of movies made around the same time. And it just seems like we bought a couple of thinner stories or not thinner, a uh, night show stories. And we're just going to kind of slap this together and we just need Stephen King's name on it. And it's very indicative of who Dino Dale Lynch's was as a person. Um, so I think he was just trying to put out. And he a, is a king a of exploitation. And he ended up with an okay product. I think that's, well, that's what I mean with using it's, it's a product. It's not particularly art. It's not particularly horrible shit. It's mostly just a product that was okay. It was, I think it was more meant for the video stores than anything pre like direct to video releases. Well, that's what I mean majorly with like using Drew Barrymore is that they used her on Firestarter. They shot North Carolina. Things went well. She was easy to work with, and Dino wanted to kind of use that again. You know, we have this talent. We know we can do something with it. So let's try and throw something in with the nope. kid. Let's it was just use designed to make money specifically. Yeah, we got this kid. Let's do it. It's a Barrymore. Let's wrap. Let's throw the kid in the movie. Just put the kid in the movie. And so they did. But it's I see. I like the last sequitur. I think it's kind of fun that. You have like a suspended relief, more of the fantasy fairy tale aspect of Stephen King's work. And again, we mentioned this on the last show, things from a child's aspect that it's just like you've got the scene where she's out in this massive, huge storm screaming for the cat general as to where right beforehand the mother takes it to the uh, the local animal shelter. And they do this shot that she she's walking inside and the cat's in a box and they slowly move the camera upward toward the fireplace of this building just steaming black smoke letting you know you know they're burning these animals to death inside they're killing them and this is the fate of our general so it pulls at your heartstrings and i think it's like the very first sequence where you have james wood's wife being electrocuted and even the cat or the very end i love the end of that one where to quitters inc and they all raise their glasses and the one friend's wife is missing the pinky and it's just got this very dubious uh dark-sided notion dark side funny because we'll get into that maybe maybe that's something about dark sides will be on this week's show who knows but it just plays back and forth equally, and I like that. I like the, the the effects are cool. It looks fun, but I love the innocence. And then the little girl wins. She doesn't die in the back of a pinto because her parents had an affair, and everything's happy. I think for a lot of people, this was their first real entrance into Stephen King because it was a PG-13 film. But if you really get down to it, the I think like, this is the only PG-13 segments in this movie like the first one is incredibly dark and the second one's dark it has a decapitation in it well the, the first <laughs> I mean, one is like completely not suitable for children at the you know because it's this whole idea of smoking and quitting and losing something for the sake of losing something that it's it's Stephen King's concepts aren't friendly toward anyone under 16 but at the same time you go past 16 and start losing the fear of childhood Stephen King stops being as effective as it was but I think overall cat's eye is it's 
for the most part trash, but it's acceptable trash. It's kind of like Graveyard Shift. I, I would put it. I mean, there's some nostalgia in there. I think Graveyard overall, Shift I is think, a better movie. I, I think they're both. I think they're pretty much equal. I think I would give it the exact same rating as I gave Graveyard Shift. Yeah, I don't remember my rating for Graveyard Shift. So I'll yours was like two and. Four or something. You know what? I'll give it higher. Three and three for me. Yeah, solid three. This is a six all around then. So this is three from three, three from three for me. So. Because it's entertaining and you don't have to take this. This is, I mean, it's definitely part of. For the most part. I mean, this is is a daytime Sunday afternoon movie. This is easily forgettable a Stephen King movie too. Like this doesn't fit in heavily to the whole notion, despite it being some of his most successful short stories that helped skyrocket his career into fame. It doesn't play off and feel like the same. It's a really sweet theme song at the end. Disco-y theme song. It's got the very worst cover of every breath you take by the police playing constantly throughout the movie. They couldn't afford the police song. So they got a cover like the cover sounds fine until the singer starts like that. God, you could have gotten a sting cover band guy or something, but Hey, Dino, he had to spend his money probably on Stephen King's cocaine. That's yeah. I think this is around the same time. So yeah, this is the eighties. Stephen was just snorting. Oh, this is maximum overdrive time. So are we are we okay? Are we transgressing out of cat's eye? Get out of cat's eye. Let's Let's move out of this. So let's move on to this is one of the weirder movies on this list because you want to love it. And I think everybody wants to, but it's just kind of not good. The Dark Half by George A. Romero. Uh, I can respect the dark half. I think that I can respect a lot of things, but that doesn't mean I like them. (laughs) Well, I think it has some really good filmmaking at times. I think Timothy Hutton does really good with his performance. Of course, you also have Michael Rooker. You have a Magnum. So you have a lot of this is one of those into the Stephen King universe things, too, because Michael Rooker plays Alan Pangborn, Sheriff Alan Pangborn, who is also the lead played by Ed Harris in Needful Things. And I don't know if this happens before or after. I guess it would make sense to be beforehand or else you'd be. Well, no, he's married. So it has to happen after Needful Things. So Which, I fought with the devil and now I'm fighting with this man's. It equally doesn't make sense because if it happened, dark half. Yeah, if this happened after needful things, the sheriff wouldn't be so inept and unwilling to believe that something supernatural was happening, which isn't, I don't think by George what really is displeasing is this is a Romero movie and I hate talking poorly about Romero I I honestly feel bad about doing it but to me it doesn't feel anything like his work it doesn't really there's a couple sequences that really feels like monkey shines to me it feels like that transitionary period the late monkey shine even has a a, a flair of Romero though like there's a few scenes in this movie that have a lot of lighting and neon that are reminiscent of Romero's works and shot styles but it's just so bland like everything that made him specific and gave him a flair is kind of missing from this i think hutton is pretty good despite i don't know the the dual performances like you already had a movie like dead ringers that was made before this and you have a great display of dual cameras and splitting the screen and using the same actor for two different portrayals and everything that has timothy hutton as two different characters in this is completely different shots and it's weak like just knowing that you could have done and it's george like knowing it's george it just lays a little weak to me that 
I know it's the same person, but I mean, God, could we have at least had them on roll at least once? I mean, twice together. You know what I'm saying? Just there's something that's lacking. Uh, with- there's a there's some of that there. It's just they didn't go through like motion control cameras and really because the story is not so much about getting them together and. <clears throat> Well, the whole end of the movie is them writing together and interacting, though. I mean, that's what really draws me to, like, being bummed out. Like, where they're writing after he stabs his hand and they're both in the room together and they start drinking. You've got one guy over the desk and the other guy on the other side, and the camera completely pans from both side to side, that there's never a frame of these two together, and they're just... There's just something in me that wanted... I mean, the whole point is these two started at one point inside each other, so they needed to be at least on screen together once to emphasize that they are one and the same. I'm nitpicking, obviously, but fuck it. It's a review, right? Well, I mean, okay, I think, again, this is probably a problem with Stephen King's original story because this is the time period where he's killing off Richard Bachman and finally coming to terms with all that and... Well, yeah, I mean, this came out, I mean, I think it was filmed in 1991 and it took two years to come out and King was getting clean. I don't know if this was the first time or the second time. Uh, sorry, I'm not a historian on Stephen King's drug abuse, but he was dealing with, like you said, coming to terms with Richard Bachman and the world coming to terms with that. And then his personality while he was drunk. I mean, there's even a prominent scene where... Um, Timothy Hutton's wife says, you know, you quit smoking and you quit drinking. But when you write these novels and just to dust into this, this is about a writer who has two personalities. Pretty much he writes, as it's said in the movie, oddy faggy stuff. And then you write this tit flick stuff. And there's a character that tries to use him after finding out that this guy writes under a pseudonym and has two different styles of writing. And he comes clean with the whole aspect. I'm the same writer. I'm going to kill this idea off. I'm not him anymore. And it comes back to haunt him with a subplot. He killed off. Well, you also have the subplot that it's possibly, or it's not possibly, it is a twin that was inside of him that was removed when he was born, and it comes back. It's made flesh through, like, killing him off. And then you have buried him at the same spot of the cemetery. All that is just hokey nonsense. This whole sparrow thing. The sparrows are just. Which it's a nice nod towards something that is older than where it's mentioned and it's referenced as a Christian theory of the sparrows bringing things to and from this world. And it's very older than that. It's a very ornate and pretty idea, but it was handled just awful. I mean, you just got this. visualize that very well. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense within the context of the film. I mean, they can bring it up, but at the same time. I think you could have done it with maybe a bird. You didn't need a swarm of them. You could have done it like, um, God, what's that Michael Bean movie with, uh, it's not Rutger Hauer. It's the guy from Dust Boot and Demi Moore. Where am I? Where am I talking about? Michael Bean, Demi Moore and the guy from Dust Boot. Jurgen Prochnow? Yeah. What's that movie? I don't know. They I can't are, think of it right now. Oh, The Seventh Sign? Yes, the se- it's not The Seventh Seal is what I wanted to say. Yeah, The Seventh Sign. It's got that, because the whole idea of the dead bird and Christ being reborn and the sparrows filling the cup. And that's where this idea is coming from, that the sparrows fill this cup from between two worlds. And that beautifully that there's some like transcendent aspect of bringing a soul to different planes. So this guy had a brain tumor and they buried it and the sparrows brought it from different planes with the seventh sign. You've got like a sparrow or a dead bird and they used the exact same concept to display the exact same thing. But it was just this, like, I don't know. 
It's like the seventh seal, just one sign of death. You don't need a whole great explanation of it. And then with the dark half, it's just thousands. Physical. Well, the sound is of an idea that you don't really introduce enough throughout the film. Well, you introduce it well enough. Introduce it. Well, they explain it twice, and I feel it was apt, but the sound design, when they explain it, is it's just overwhelming and claustrophobic with this just constant pecking and flying of thousands of birds, and it seems uncontrollable and chaotic, and it doesn't have any driving point. Like, I get it. The birds are here, and that means the bad guy's here, but you have the scene where uh, Timothy Hutton is in a room with himself and his shadow self, essentially, and it's just this overwhelming bird sound. I get it. I, I completely understand both evils and good and bad are transcending and everything's in the same room. It's too present. There's just too much of a present in your face. This is what it's about. Don't forget, this is what it's about. Please don't forget, this is what it's about. And it just doesn't feel like George. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't even feel like Stephen King. Both aspects of what makes Stephen King and George Romero whole and unique uh, and a viewing experience is just lacking to me in this. It just seems like... It's I'm just blame Romero. I think no, it's not George's fault whatsoever. I mean, this is a studio movie. He had a lot of difficulty with Timothy Hutton. He had a lot of difficulty in general at this time period doing things, but it's just lackluster. It's and it's what two hours and two minutes. It's a lengthy movie, and it doesn't really clear or clarify or make a point. I have problems with things clearly that don't. Oh, I think have it's it makes it a little bit of a point of. You know, I mean, the general idea of coping with your dark side, it's a part of you and you can make peace with it or you can let it consume you. And he, throughout the whole movie, is letting it consume him. But at the end, he's able to let go of it. And when you get into all the metaphysical stuff and all that, it's just I think that's overly Stephen Kingy. It's sort of like it in that same way of like we're going, what about the Indians? Why is this in here? Like. Some things need little explanation. Some things need almost no explanation. And this is one of the Well, it was like our disagreement like, with Graveyard I don't think you needed as much of the sparrows or the metaphysical stuff to it. Like, I don't – like, the whole point of him having the twin and it being buried in the cemetery, like, all that just seems like place-setting nonsense. It's like it's unimportant. It's just his dark side has separated from, from him. Why does it have to have, like, almost an explanation to it? It's like, that just seems kind of pointless. Well, without that explanation, there wouldn't be a point, though. Uh, there, it wouldn't be that there's not a point. Nothing would happen. Well, I mean... I, I mean, you would just have the shadow there, self yeah. running around all willy-nilly. Yes, that shadow... Like, yeah, that's fine. Which, I don't know why it needed to grow out of the fetus parts left over from his goddamn surgery when he was a kid of his absorbed twin. It's like, okay, that's overly descriptive of a concept that doesn't need to be that. Well, let's look when this story came out and let's try and estimate Uh, how much blow Stephen King was doing. And I know that you are going to not agree with me on this point, but I would say this is more of the upper tier Stephen King. I will say that right now. I'll give it to you. Stephen Stephen King films. It's classy for the most part. It has an elegant look I think it works better than The Stand as a film. I think it's better than any of those TV movies. I I, I will be fully... I'll I'll be completely honest. I've never finished The Stand. I've I've lost it, and I've never found any interest in it. Maybe one day I should try and read it, but, like, I will give you the absolute... Essentially, the book is fun. The visualization of it it gets to be ridiculous. Well, let's look at the era I was made in. A lot of Stephen King stuff, and this is, like... 
it all is for the most part a pretty concise idea from beginning middle to end and well, Steve I think and, it's filmed in a classy way Steve Z and George were close so having people that are close really helps benefit and, and play off things that these guys knew each other and you know for all intents and purposes if you drink with someone if you're friends with someone if you've known them for more than 10 years you're pretty intimate you know their behavior their habits so one person was able to for once take an actual view at what their friend had done and turn it into their own art piece. And it just, to me, my biggest fault is I just don't feel Ramiro or King out of it. I know who did it. I know who's responsible for it, but there just seems like something pulling at me that's missing that just needed. And like, there are like, there's a lot of Ramiro looks. There's a lot of things that make it evident that this is his movie and that, his editing style, his work style shows it just lacks something for me. Like, I, I love it. I enjoy watching it, but this is like a once every 10 year movie for me. I give it a three and a half and a three. And yes, I'm also the same asshole who like diary the dead. So fucking blow me. I think that's a fair assessment. I'm going to, instead of rating it myself, I'll stick to yours. There's nothing really more to say about it because it's a good movie. I mean, the faults that I have with it are more, there's not enough style. There's just not enough George for me. There's not enough Stephen King for me that that's whatever. That's nitpicking at this point. It's a, it's an okay movie. And I mean, that's the best, I guess I can say it's okay. It's okay. next on the list here 
we're moving into some fun territory. I don't know how I you feel about it. It's fun. That's a giant lie. Do you like John Cusack? Oh no. Oh yes. Do you like Samuel L. Jackson? Because we're talking about Cell. Not even fourteen years away. No, 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 no. We're talking Cell, baby. It would have been too nice of us to do fourteen oh eight. The craptastic Cell. Um, okay, this, so can I have a story? You, okay. You, the first time that I knew anything about Cell was sitting in a recliner at your house where you said, hey, you want to see something that really pisses me off? And you showed me this like 15 minute, it wasn't even short, synopsis of all that Cell is about that displayed all the major scenes, the ending of the movie and how absolutely ludicrous it was. And then you yelled about it for about 40 minutes. Like it wasn't short. And it's bad. It's a so, bad movie. Two years later, I finally watched Cell. And I just wish I had someone to yell about. Like, I wanted someone in my room to yell. Just like, God damn it, did you watch it? Did you fucking watch it? Because this is one of the bottom tiers. We just laughed a top-tier Stephen King this movie. This is you know? modern King when he's just lost his goddamn mind. I don't know if this is like Oxycontin Blues Stephen King or what the excuse is for the idea of the story here, but I thought I had this, you know, donkey-brained idea that, hey, maybe the book made sense. No! None of them fucking made sense. None of them goddamn made sense. Just none. I just want it to make sense so bad. I watched this three times back to back just thinking maybe I missed something. I'm pleading with myself. Just make sense. But you know what? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense. None of it. Not one part of it. Not like why does he even bother putting a hat on? The whole world's ending and he puts his hat on. What are you doing? Well, I mean, it has its own sort of internal logic at the beginning and it's an interesting concept of everyone has a cellular device now everybody's talking their cell phones what would happen if you got some weird signal that made you go crazy and turn into a zombie okay that's an interesting idea then but what if it was of, from the brain of a graphic novelist what if it wasn't a terrorist threat what well, if it was john cusack what i mean and there's some other things like when the the cellies i think those are called or the phone phoners called phoners yeah, yeah they're phoners, phoners. Um, they'll all gather and like Sally's is good though. But they'll all open their mouths and they'll all emit a tone that it's all gathers up. together, like they're pinging back to the controller of all this. And then it's kind of a typical zombie movie of Samuel Jackson, John Cusack, and they pick up travelers and they're just trying to get to a place where there are no phones. There are no phoners. Just to interrupt you while we're on yes. the subject that we bring up Sam Jackson, if there is a redeeming point of this movie, it is Samuel L. Jackson. He is does nothing though. He's he pointlessly in this movie. He's absolutely pointless, but he has great dialogue, and he's one of the only things you care about because as the plot goes forward, anybody that seems to be valuable, like you you focus on this character, uh, this female character for half the movie just for her to be left fucking on a rock. And that's it. We just have to go because she's stupid now. Okay. Well, I the fragility of life that in a circumstance like this, I mean, people... You, you can't sit down and grieve for people. You have to just keep pushing forward. You leave them and to die ripped apart by, well, like, at least shooter. Yeah, but the whole point, um, I feel, of that entire sequence was something, you know, like John Steinbeck, that you, you know, look to the flowers and you put them out of their misery. It's a, a, a peaceful thing. It's not leaving them to be ravaged and ripped open. I mean, I thought that was one of the most lonely sequences of the scene that they, or the movie, that they fought with this person, they loved with this person, they lived with this person, and then they just fucking leave them. So characters don't matter. I mean, even right off the bat, you get this whole point of like, I'm DJ Liquid, and then the guy gets DJ hit with Liquid's awesome. 
Yeah, but he dies like two seconds later. Why even give me the character's name? What's the point of putting that in the movie if you're not even going to give me who DJ Liquid is? I want to hear one of his songs. Tell me who his SoundCloud is. You like, know, none I, of this matters to me. Like no, oh, none like, of it matters at all. These are all like weird nitpicks that you have about like actual things that in a story that a makes movie. sense like, would matter. Well, the we story gotta itself it. doesn't make sense, though, Hank. The, like, the story itself okay. is the major problem. But there's a big difference between me and you, because we've done this twice throughout this whole Stephen King extravaganza that I don't care if the movie makes sense or what it is about. I'm still going to try, no matter what, to get some form of coherency out of it, and I don't feel I'm asking a lot out of that. I mean, a beginning and a middle and end is all I want, so even if you are— well, it in- doesn't do those things very well. No, this doesn't, but that's my complaint that, you know, I want that. I don't want a massive backstory. I just want you to let me know what's happening, who it's happening to, why it's happening, and then end it. I don't need the spiraling, weird, king of the internet, non-sequitur scenes of people blowing themselves up and traveling in a night. What the fuck happens? What is this goddamn movie about? That would be what the problem is, because we're never given an adequate reason for what the fuck is going on, or it's this vague kind of trying to recreate Randall Flagg and the Stan sort of character. There's there's the apocalyptic guy in a hoodie who might be controlling this, or could that all be in John Cusack's head? Has this all been in John Cusack's head the entire time? But why? Like, uh, why is it in his head? These because he's a phoner like now, Hank. He's just but, a phoner. But that's it's, even before he was a phoner. Like, this is, I don't feel a far-out concept to just tell me what the fuck is happening. I mean, exactly. Like, that's the even, problem with the movie. No one tells you anything. Of what's well, I mean, happening. let's take something like completely bizarre. Like, let's try and uh, I don't know, like Aguar, the wrath of God, a, a bunch of people out in the middle of the fucking jungle. And they're trying to find the city completely made out of gold. And someone's power hungry. And he goes absolutely crazy. At the same time, it's a bunch of people marching around in the jungle, and then they're on a raft for a good portion of the movie. And it's Klaus Kinski yelling with monkeys. It's just a weird dreamlike clusterfuck of a movie, but it has a beginning and middle and ending and it has a point like something absolutely happens in that movie. What the fuck happened in cell? He was at an airport. All these people become zombies. He puts on a hat. He meets Samuel L. Jackson. They walk around for a long time, find some Trump supporters and steal their guns. Uh, Something, something, something ending, and then he's a what? They go to Canada. I'm just, I just wanted coherency. Yes, it's definitely flawed. I mean, that's the the major problem with it. Is just it, there's no real reason given for anything. anything. Of why you even watch this movie? Like you throw out a bunch of like weird exactly. Concepts, why like, did about the I guy. watch this movie? What was the fucking point to even like you expect? anything out of watching a movie an emotion a feeling a story i don't even get a coherent story i don't even think it like that's where it really trips up where it trips up is it gives all these ends that you can tie up at the end all these different concepts and it never ties up any of it it never even explains what journey the concepts aren't even explored yeah that's the problem with it it's just, I mean, you he mentioned throws like, them out there and they're just there. It's just, well, you know, he was working on a graphic novel. This is a character in it. Then why is he in the real world? I don't know. Well, he's what, what the think? president of Harvard. And, like in the book, they explain it, I guess, a little bit more that he has this meaning. He's the president of Harvard, not just the president of the Internet, which I think played better in the movie, giving it this like social media, except because everybody is on their phone. I mean, that was one of the shocking things of starting the movie is thinking 
God, would you, would I have been on my phone when this happened? And that draws you in because you get part of that fourth wall experience I referenced on the other show of being dragged into the plot and like a graveyard shift, feeling like you're a part of it. You realize, God, what I've been on my phone, I fly a lot. So I go to the airport pretty regularly. And when I'm at the airport, I'm sitting at the bar and I'm on my phone. That's what you do when you're at an airport. So you've got a lot of realism and something that drags you into this and then immediately just lets you go. The realism completely drops and it goes like, I thought it was faff. I thought the entire they're speaking from their mouths and they're connecting and you get to the Stacy Keach character and it's like, well, the human mind is essentially a supercomputer. They're updating at night. It's like an error loading screen. I get it. I, I completely understand what you're going with. It's technology and the new flesh taking over and people not being aware of what's actually going on because they're so plugged in. But you just completely drop the ball and you add this like Randall flag, the stand idea to things. And that would have been really cool if you kept with it, if you pushed it to like if you his presence. A point to it at all, as opposed yeah, to even being, it being a, a clusterfuck at the end. Well, it being in his mind even could have been something like, you know, you could have done this whole point of like this guy uses social media so much he created this or he's become so untethered from the world that he has started this thing. It's very similar to the dark half when you really think about it, because it's this concept from someone's mind that has been brought forward again. Stephen King just constantly regurgitates his ideas. You know, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Killer car, killer laundromat, killer whatever, or the evil of people. And this is a killer item that's become another thing. And then the evil inside of people, because the character, as you see constantly with Stephen King, can't let go of something, can't let go of the past. So he has to travel to this place that there are no phones, there are no cell towers at, because he can't get over his past. He can't get over his faults or whatever you want to drive it at. It's the exact same goddamn story. Everything's the same. Well, you can use the same archetypes in a story even like this, but it's just do not put all this excess information in it when apparently has not much to do with the plot because you never find out what's going on. You never find out what... If it's just about a story of personal growth, then he didn't grow and he didn't really learn anything. So even that is like is out the fucking door of this movie. It's, it honestly feels like Stephen King got to a point and he wrote, he had a page minimum or a word count minimum of like whatever, 23 million words. Okay, I'm past now. And uh, I guess it's over. Here's the end. It's like, oh, for fuck's sakes, you have to like wrap things up a little bit. You have to make them uh, like to like really make your audience make it resonate with them you have to give them something to hang on to and you gave them nothing to hang on to i read a story that was ultimately depressing at the end the end well a lot of uh, explanations for the reasons that thing happened with todd williams the cell or it's just cell sorry the cell has vincent d'ofrio in it that's actually a pretty okay movie this kind of got put in production hell like eli roth was really interested in doing a version of this movie and he i guess was the first up for grabs to do it and had a whole idea and the weinsteins came to him and said you know we want to do it cor- uh, like a survival horror kind of thing want to make it like more of an exploration type movie where we're going through different terrains and people have to fight. That's what's popular right now. So Todd Williams gets the job. Uh, Eli Roth came up with some excuse that he prefers to do things that he writes and directs and everybody moved on. We mentioned this in the last episode. Who knows if it would have been better? I think Eli Roth might have brought a level of 
and I don't know, grittiness. The base story is so fucked up. I don't think Eli Roth has saved unless you. I think he could have significant portion of it. Well, I mean, yeah, that uh, taken into consideration, Eli Roth rewriting things uh, sounds fine. But what we have is this end result with Cell is nothing. Literally, I don't understand. I don't think where Stephen King was before the it remake came out. This is where he was. was I mean, I don't think that like I am that inept. We all know me. You listen to the show. I'm not that bad. I just don't get it. I don't understand what the movie's trying to say to me. I don't get the point. I don't understand the story. I definitely don't understand the ending. Is it a dream? Did the whole movie not happen? And he's been a phoner the whole time. I, I just don't, don't think so because the truck is still there. I think yeah. the last part wasn't a thing, and he's still obsessed with his own mental. So when his son hugs him and he starts screaming, that's when you know he gets. Yeah, I would give it a one and a half, and maybe it might reach a cult classic status for being terrible. Well, the fanatic is quickly crawling up the ladder to become a cult classic, and uh, I'm not so sure that wasn't orchestrated to be that. I'm sorry. What's the fanatic? You've you've John Travolta. Oh, with Devon uh, Sawa, Fred Durst drinks. Lent Biscuit. I, it yeah. doesn't look bad. I've not yeah. seen it. The first uh, line out of John Tremolton's mouth is, um, I can't talk right now. I got to take a big poop. Oh. Uh, sometimes I say things and they shouldn't be taken. <laughs> There's Some... a scene where Lent video in the film where Devon Sawa is driving his kid around in his car and he turns at the radio and says, Hey, this is Limp Biscuit. You like these guys? Yeah, when I was a teenager, this was pretty hot stuff, man. Yeah, Limp Biscuit. Uh-huh. But I'm not shitting you. John Travolta says that? No, Devon Sawa. He's the celebrity that John Travolta is stalking. Uh, yes. Well, long story short, Limp Biscuit and Stephen King. Good night. Um, <laughs> fuck. What's next? I'm done talking about Cell. It's a piece of shit. Doesn't make any sense. It's yeah, poorly God. acted. It's poorly directed. It's just a. It's a bad movie overall. So moving on to, I, I know you like this movie, and I, I said this before we started the show. The last time I saw this movie is when we reviewed it the last time, which was ten years ago. Oh, from I 19, know where this is. 1985's Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet. This movie is fucking trash. This movie, like the source material story, was based on a calendar. So <laughs> it's basically a calendar that uh, Stephen King wrote a little, like, small chapter for a book, and then it all ended up being a book. It's okay. I mean, it's very uh, main. It's very much uh, uh, like a meditation on childhood and childhood fears and, you know, average 80 Stephen King stuff. And when changed into a film product wow did they get so much of it wrong and so much of it right at the same time because everything in it is just goofy well, some of the goofy, goofy stuff goofy. though the I motorcycle mean, wheelchair is goofy yeah that's where i was goofy that's where i was driving in right here that a lot of the goofy aspects are like heartwarming that you've got like the uncle this crazed ass Gary Boosie who was obviously you know high on goofballs this entire experience building this rocket motorcycle for his crippled nephew and it's like okay this is absolutely unbelievable but it's almost heartwarming I've got this like weird 1950s everybody's getting along and life is okay vibe but there's a werewolf and a rocket wheelchair and there's just too many cooks in the kitchen there's so many different ideas and perspectives that are coming into play like there's a nice family aspect. There's an evil werewolf aspect. There's a pious Christian aspect. There is talk to me about justice, sheriff. 
I get us all some of that justice. You've got people coming to turn bad acting, a lot of bad acting. Well, bad acting's a big aspect, but even with like plot points and character development, you got people coming to terms with who they are and dealing with what they are, and that comes on all aspects. You have the one child who cannot partake and do everything that everybody else can because he can't walk. You've got the inebriated uncle dealing with the fact that he's a loser drunk. You've got Everett McGill dealing with the fact that he's a fucking werewolf. All of these things. It's just too much. Again, all this dumping on you in like a, well, a short story or a 30 minute like segment the, would have been successful, but all in all aspects of the movie that doesn't work so well is the narration that it decided to put narration over the film, which is really like distracts from the narrative that we're trying to tell. And I've said this before. But, well, I mean, I, I don't hate narration and it's done very well, but most of the time I feel if you have to use narration, it's because you can't tell the story successfully. So you're using it as a cover and you've got guys like Terrence Malick who use it successfully like uh, Sissy SpaceX in Badlands and it's not completely relevant to the movie it's Sissy SpaceX character expressing her yes, emotion and what's happening the character and Silver Bullet doesn't inform anything no, but that, yeah that's what I mean story. when you have to use this narration and aspect of telling the story that means you've not been able to complete what you need to visually show so using narration is just a kind of a cheap cop out I would say overall Silver Bullet's a two and a half but a five call points I love Silver Bullet I thought it was complete garbage when I was a kid and I've grown to love this movie um, I think it's got the mine's opposite. It's got so many fucking problems with it, so many problems. But overall, I think it wins just on sheer nostalgia and sheer heartwarming garbage. I think it's trash, but it's awesome trash. I loved it as a child. No, I don't have a lot of pleasure with it. It was a stress to get through and kind of boring. Wow. It's not the Lost Boys or anything, man. <laughs> it's not the Lost Boys or anything. What a comparison. It's got Corey Haim in it. They have nothing to do with each other as stories, though. No, but Corey Haim was in it. You know, I'm I'm tying it together. Yes. I I just don't have a lot of love for it. I mean, like I said, I was going to shit all over Gerald's game, and I ended up, you know, talking really highly of it. I don't have a lot for Silver Bullet. I never enjoyed it. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought it was fun because I liked the idea. Pots, I'm going to bust your ass. Wooly is great in it. I like the idea as a kid, I guess, of having family and having, you know, a unit or relating to people and having this whole encompassing thing where everyone works together to defeat the evil. And now it's just boring to me. I don't care. It just doesn't do anything for me sometimes. I mean, it's not a bad movie. It looks okay. It's fine. Everyone's okay in the movie. I have no bones to pick with it. The kid in the wheelchair should have died. Well, no, goddammit. It's about the Pinto. If the, Look, you motherfucker. If the Pinto had been worked on, everything. But the kid doesn't die in Cujo. Look, okay. You're just trying to pin Cheryl Jeth on me. I am not Giles Durant. He deserved it. He ate meat on a Friday. I hope he dies in that wheelchair. I'm not a Catholic. I don't even believe in God. (laughs) You know what? You're a bastard. (laughs) What's next on the list? I didn't. Did we rate Cell? Did we give Cell a rating? I gave it a rating. I said it's garbage. I said it might hit cult classic stands for being bad, but it's a one and a half. I would say Silver Bullet's like a two and a half. All right. You know, it sucks because, like, I really wanted the next movie to be something that I could be like, you know what? Fuck you. This is such a better movie. I'm going to, you know, shit all over your house. But we're going to be talking about Mick Garris's fucking shit all over my house. No, this is way worse than Silver Bullet. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's just trash. It's not even redeeming trash. I'm like, it's cute. No, it's not. I put my foot down. I was like, this has to be on the show. We're doing Sleepwalkers. We got to talk about Sleepwalkers. We've got to coming off the coke. I have nothing to say about this. Werecats. Fucking werecats that suck souls. So, okay, let's talk about addiction and people doing drugs. This is when you're trying to, like, wean yourself off the hard drugs and you're using another one. Like, okay, I'm on I did laundry machines. I guess so. Werecats are next. Yeah, I, I've been um, on Coke for a really long time, so I think I'm going to start drinking a little bit more beer and, I don't know, maybe taking some downers. What did we do this? And maybe uh, the mama werecat fucks the baby werecat. Maybe we need an incest angle in here. I don't know, yeah. Steven. I can't do any more killer cars. I can't do any more laundry machines. Did rat bats. Should have saved rat bats for a while. I don't know. So they're werecat people, but they hate cats and they fuck each other. I think I got something. I think, all right, uh, let's run with... It was with- a script, too. This yeah. is, I think, the first movie he ever just wrote a script to and I don't know what the fuck he was thinking because it did, you want to talk about not making sense this is another one that doesn't really make a look of sense I mean they can only be taken down by cats which by nature are fucking adorable so when you're throwing one at a guy in a monster suit it just comes off as stupid and cheesy I'm pretty convinced Stephen King got really stoned and was listening to Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny and went you know what fuck it wear cats I'm gonna I got something I don't know What's this the sleepwalker is a f- part? What the fuck is a sleepwalker? Is that a werecat? Is that their species name? This is like a fever dream, though. Like, speed people don't do this type of thing. Teens dream is what it is. Uh, 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 Clovis. And that's the only character you seem to care about the entire movie is a cat named Clovis uh, who somehow becomes the hero. Comic? Oh, yeah, she well. It's good. It's always good during anything to this day. Madshin Amick, as David Lynch would say, uh, there's, you know, I get a lot of shit for not saying people's names right, but I can say Kyle McLaughlin and he just calls the prick Kale. So there's a difference between David Lynch and I. I at least can say Kyle McLaughlin. The cameos were a mistake. All these cameos that throughout the movie, let's just have fun with it. We'll just put on these horror directors. We'll put Mark Hamill. We'll put Ron Perlman. We'll just put all these people in it. All right, Mick, you have beautiful hair. I will never talk shit about your hair. This was hair is maybe God. (laughs) I don't know if hair can be God, but this was a bad mistake from beginning to end, from script to fucking pre-production to production. It's not a part of history and they've been evil and stuff. And sometimes they take souls and breath. I don't know. What can I do with that? That's as far as it went, man. Cause there's like the plot of this movie is, fucking nonsense. Well, I mean, IMDb says a mother and son team of strange supernatural creatures move to a small town to seek out a young virgin to feed on. I don't know how much of, like, I guess, yes, they are hunting to find, like, that's their species that they need. They want to live forever, so they have to take young girls' fucking souls. But this is psychic vampires years before psychic vampires. It's just Stephen King. Well, he had an idea and he ran with it. It's kind of cool, though. I mean, like, if anything, you you really actually have werecats. Yeah, Brian. Not Cross. Cool. Hold on. What are you? Uh, dude, about you don't shape-shifting think shifting werecats? What? What if? Okay. What? Uh, you, you make as, his car look like a firebird? Or you a as Jeep? a cat man, you have multiple cats. I'm a feline fin- friend. We all have cats. You don't think that that's awesome? Like, you know, you could be a cat no. man. No. Why would you want to make that man? I don't think anything in this story works. 
Not even a, a little inch of it works. I think it's misbegotten. It's an aberration to manning. I'm not disagreeing with you. I just don't understand why you wouldn't want to be a cat man. My necessity to transition myself into a cat has nothing to do. With it, no, you're you're using these like like big dollar words like transition. I'm not saying like you have to like become or become not, but like if you could be a I cat man. Cat, yeah. But like, like, dude, if you could be Catman and then Nashman and then Catman and then you know whatever, like, I would be a Catman. Uh, what's the problem with the cat? Slay Sleepwalker sucks. Say it now, or we end this fucking show forever. I just want to be a Catman. Just say Sleepwalker sucks. It, it, it sucks. It's fucking awful. It, it's uh, a one. Sleepwalker doesn't suck. It's not bad. It's a one and maybe five cult points because it's so goddamn shitty. If. If like, listeners out there have an affinity for this movie, please explain to me. Please explain. I am. I'm trying to explain about. to you. Yeah, and but you you're fucking like full of shit. I, I, I can't I, listen to you. I, but we do a sh- this. Get a fucking new host then. I mean, what do we do? I, I am not full of shit. It's okay. The I have no defense here because my whole point is what if you could be a cat man and you don't want to talk about the cat No, because that has nothing to do with the, the plot. Of it does. Plot. Okay, but there isn't a plot, though. We've already established <laughs> that. I just want to be a boat. Let's make a movie about no, it. I don't want to be a boat. I want to be a cat man. That's a difference. So I can. It is relate. not different. No, okay. Well, being a boat man is definitely different. It's be- not different. It it's- is. What Are you you turn into a cat. That is not what Sleepwalker is about. No, no, it's you know. not. Well, it's uh, they don't turn into cats; they turn into cat men. It doesn't matter. It you does. And let's it, move on. Nope, it's two stars. It's not two stars. It's, it's one two stars. Star it's two. Fucking garbage. I Alexander Nash gives it one star and five cold points. Hank, the world's greatest, gives it two stars, five cold points. How about yeah. them apples? It's trash, and I hate it. So you want to talk it? about trash? I God, I don't give a fuck what the people want. I, <laughs> I don't know how many days we've been doing this and I don't know where I'm at. I've been locked in the same room and it's just we've been watching Stephen King movies. Happy Halloween. But trash, trash. Uh, it, I don't know. You say it like it's a bad thing. This is trash. There's a lot of things that we both... I also said Silver Bullet was trash and that was a good thing. Exactly. There's a lot of things that we love and that we are compassionate about that are trash. And I think the pinnacle of Stephen King trash and the greatest and the highest point of Stephen King trash is something that he did all on his own. This is Stephen King. <laughs> well, some people say if you can't do it right, maybe you should just do it yourself. That machine called me an asshole. (laughs) Stephen King. Is he dead? Written and directed for the screen by Stephen King. 1986's Maximum Overdrive. Is he dead? Have you seen that? You've seen the trailer where Stephen King's talking to the the camera, right? Like, Mm -hmm. well, if you can't get it done right, maybe you should just do it yourself. Or you do it yourself and get it more wrong than anyone's ever gotten it, Stephen. How do you fuck up your own shit way worse than anybody else does? This is where all the coke jokes and all the drug jokes come finally together at the end of this episode. Stephen has said out of his entire career there are two massive things he doesn't remember. One, writing Cujo. He has no recollection of that. He doesn't know where it came from outside of his pinto was breaking down around the same time period. So a story formed. In this essence, let's talk about drugs and what they do to your mind. Then sit down and watch Maximum Overdrive because this is what happens. It's not even bad, though. Like, 
It's bizarre. It has a charm. Certain things that are machines have become sentient, but other but not things everything. That are machines don't. A great deal of cars in the parking lot that never move through this entire movie, but all right, whatever. Some things hooked up to the power grid, they go crazy, but same things that are hooked up to batteries also go crazy. Airplanes go crazy, cars don't go crazy. So No, airplanes do no go rules. crazy. Yes, they do. Airplanes no, I said airplanes do go crazy, but oh, cars do don't. not go crazy. Sedans don't go crazy. So I don't think he even understood his own internal logic. I think he thought sentient trucks killing people was an interesting idea. So he wrote well, a story where and this then he idea got comes from. and wrote I mean, this and put a green goblin face on a truck, well, which is got, awesome. You've got trucks and that's where this idea comes from. A short story by Stephen King, which is about people kind of surviving in this desolate diner. It's like three or four pages. And then this entire idea kind of compounds on top of it. And it has a great idea of survival. Like it's a night of the living dead kind of movie. It's got that same aspect of these people all trapped in the same place, different personalities, but none of the characters are displayed with any like relevance. Everyone that has They're animosity. Characters. They're not real people. Well, I mean, even trying to display things like Harry Cooper against Ben, these two people fight incessantly throughout the entire movie until it explodes into this atomic bomb level of anger and everyone really gets punished because of the actions of these people. None of the characters that have a disagreement or any of the tension that builds has a reason. The characters are quaintly shot off in a gun battle scene almost, and like that doesn't even make sense. It's literally a fucking coke dream. The gun and is, it, it uses like, no machinery but it it's uses... also got a belt attached to it with belt ammunition and clips so how is it that shooting take electricity either none of that takes any sort of power that's all levers so what, why is that movie... able to be used well, i mean a good portion of the movie is the kid like traveling to get to the truck stop and it has no connection like he's looking for his dad he was at a baseball game he's just driving around on his bike until he gets there and all these characters finally yeah, are placed it. Yeah, your dad's dead. Sorry, kid. And then they all just hang out and have fun until, hey, shit, some Russians shot down an alien that we never mentioned whatsoever in the movie. And then this comet left and everything's yeah, we're cool. We're on again. a boat. We got on a boat. It's fine. We're OK. We're going to that island George Romero talked about his entire career. We're all heading there. Oddly, Maximum Overdrive works better than almost any other Stephen King movie. From the moment you start it, you've got the weird ACDC soundtrack that's like cued in with all original songs. And then like for those about to rock and back to black or just like randomly thrown in there. The attitude, key, uh, Emilio's character, just everyone. Christ sakes, they call him hero most of the movie. Yeah, he doesn't even get a name. It's just this like hero. big just bloated types. Just hiring ACDC was like that. That's a brilliant. Well, even movie. better. Do you know how he got ACDC? I'm sure he ran into them at an airport. Well, he called them and was like, I want you guys to do this movie and whatever. You know, we're not actors. They He wanted them to be in the movie and they all said, we don't act. We're not going to do this. We don't act. He sang a song off the Dirty Deeds, Dunder Cheap album, like from start to finish, all four minutes to ACDC. And they clapped. They said, all right, you really you're a fan. And they did it specifically because he could sing an entire obscure song to them. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that that's him tipping his hand a little bit because I think even in his drug out of mind, he was also like he knew kind of what he was doing is he just wanted to make this rock and roll movie. I mean, he made it before it was edited and 
cut by the censors, incredibly violent, completely over the top. Well, look who his best just, friend is. Like, like he just who, wanted to make a rock and roll movie, and I think he somewhat succeeded with that, even though it doesn't make any goddamn sense, even though the characters are, like, less than, like, filled out whatsoever. I think he kind of gave a just a balls-out performance for him as a director, and, and there's nothing subtle about any of it, and I think that's what, that's the, the one heroine's quiver that it has, is definitely not subtle well, i think there's something behind this movie that a lot of people don't talk about and that's who stephen king's best friend was at the time and who was on set and there every single day with him talking to him and dealing with him and there are some rumors that people believe this guy actually directed most of maximum overdrive and i find this hard to believe because it doesn't look a specific way and uh, we mentioned this earlier George A. Romero does things a certain way and he looks a certain way and I did admit and say that the dark half doesn't look like a George Romero movie this doesn't look like the dark half but George was on set and with Steven every single day so a lot I think of the ludicrous stuff that came from this movie is you know you should do this I didn't get to do this. You should do this. One of the scenes you were mentioning that was uh, twice as more violent than it showed up was when the steamroller goes over the baseball field. They had thrown out a blood pack. And Steven's idea was the steamroller was going to drive over the blood pack and, you know, get this trail of blood behind it and look really awesome. But when they got up to it and they did the pressure, it popped the goddamn blood pack and it looked like a head exploding, which was cut by the censors. But that's really like Tom Savini, George Romero. That's over the top. Funny mentioning Tom Savini. He I think was actually. It needs it though. I wish an uncut version. No, yeah, it, it it this needs to be over the top. And even like mentioning Tom Savini, he was uh, initially attached to direct Graveyard Shift, which would have just totally made that movie completely different and much more over the top. You've got this aspect with it, and you've got like Stephen King. First and foremost, is a horror fan. Plus, uh, he loves Terrorist Trap. I will respect that man. But I mean, he's into kitsch he's into comedy he's into gore he's into exploitation he's into it all i mean uh like like the evil dead that was a movie that was championed and really penned and got a driving force and a successful release because of somebody like stephen king he is a fan he at his core is a horror fanboy and something like maximum overdrive like as an experience as a full movie is so complete to me as a horror fanboy as the same thing really like rob zombie stephen king all these guys they're at their core just they love they love horror and maximum overdrive is such a terrifying i don't know it's cars that are going crazy and all this shit's happening it doesn't matter this is the one instance where all of the reasoning all of the backing doesn't matters i don't give a fuck at all you didn't even have to tell me about the meteor you could have just said cars started coming alive i love it emilio's great i love it it's fine this out of all the the cheese the the exploitation the the just dumb shit like cell just literally redundant hard dense shit to get through this makes it worthwhile this is what is just my love of stephen king this coke addicted bastard Fucking lawnmowers! Lawnmowers! He got a lot of shit when this movie came out for making just this trashy exploitation movie. And really, with Stephen King's first directorial like film, do you think he was going to make The Shining? Do you think he was going to take one of his more stories? You'd have to craft something. He has no idea what he's doing, so he just like made a kid movie. That's what like a kid would make a movie, and I think that's awesome for what it is because it's just like I don't know. Let's 
you don't have ACDC do your fucking soundtrack and be in your right fucking mind. Well, here's like something really that is important that you just said is the aspect of how things are translated through Stephen King. Like this is his first directorial debut. Did you expect it to be The Shining? Going to remake yes. Carrie? Well, no. Do something like super intricate and but like look he's at not people. talented well, that way. That's not the problem. The problem is it's Stephen King's Carrie. It's Stephen King's The Shining. It's Stephen King's whatever. So people go and see the movie and people go and see The Shining and they go see Carrie and they see his name. They think he did it. Nobody saw Stanley Kubrick. Nobody saw Brian De Palma. Stephen King, Stephen King, Stephen King, Stephen King. So, yes, when he released this movie, he got shit on so heavily because they did expect some fucking Jean-Luc Godard masterpiece, some giant, beautifully cut, beautiful thing. No, this is a guy that is set in his room every day, chain smoking Pall Malls and doing coke. It's not a... Yeah, coke. it's dumb as fuck. Yeah, yeah like, it's really, not a redeemable that's a movie. dumb as fuck movie, yeah, there's but no it's redeemable entertaining. Fashion. It's well, not very even, entertaining. Not even entertainment. Beside, like it's actually well written. It's it's not awfully. Ooh, I, mm, I don't know about that one. I, I I don't. I can't go with you on this trick because Maximum Overdrive is not well written. It's barely thought out, and it's an impulsive act of filmmaking. And that's but Bat Rat. That's the better. grounds that I like it on is that it's very impulsive. Well, I mean, let's look at like Bat Rat though. I mean, where's the difference? Where's the dip? Well, the difference. The difference is Graveyard Shift, again, is somewhat crafted into being, like, the story may suck, but they, they're able to do other things with acting. And, like, there's nothing in Maximum Overdrive that I would call professional. Like, some professional special effects, maybe, some people trying to act, even though they're not really given too much of a character other than your hero, your kid. Weakening your my argument. Guy. Here's a, a weakening point for my argument of professionalism. Stephen King was sued for like $18.5 million because the art director of this movie was permanently blinded because of a lawnmower stunt that hardly is featured in the movie. And they settled out of court, which uh, that means you did the bad thing. You fucked up. You settled out of court. There's no fighting. It's going to cost you more to fight it than it is. to. And for $18 million. But I guess my entire argument is maybe just the loose, dumb fucking nature of this is why it makes it so great. I don't care. But I think compared to like 1922, where it's this over emptive idea of here's the story. He killed his wife. He did all this stuff. And here's all the stuff he has to constantly boring story but it's crafted to tell that specific story and but i think really this is better ship in maximum overdrive i don't think so because all they do is they get trapped and they get they go off on a boat they get out there's almost no story it's mostly just about what kind of things he can throw at you throughout right, but the what entire you, thing what okay what happens in dawn of the dead how does that end what's it what's what, why the is original that dawn of the dead yeah the, the 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 ending you know what? because it's saying something about these people and like like maximum overdrive is saying nothing about people. It doesn't have people grow. It doesn't have people learn anything. Well, a lot of pe- like people learn. Uh, well, where does anyone grow differently in Dawn of the Dead, though? I mean, I don't think there's a. They completely change as people. <laughs> How? They're all the same from the beginning. They're just getting through. They're surviving. Stephen loses his mind. Roger loses his mind. Uh, Peter, but that's how they were shown himself because but, he just doesn't feel right in this world anymore. He, but that's shown at that's the beginning of the movie. Peter doesn't take off his mask. He is 
an entity yes. under. No, but hold on, he's an entity under that mask. So Peter never takes it off whatsoever. So they're storming the building. He deals with Wooly. He gets finally down there with Roger, who's already succumbed and taken off his mask to his weakness and is dealing with it. You're shown the characters right there, right off the bat. Stephen wants to run, so you know. Yeah. Yeah, but you know who these people are because of those actions. So by their character arc, Stephen wanted to run. Now he's infested and stuck with the idea of being running. He leads the zombies back to where they're coming from. And then Peter, or Roger rather, was just so ready to take off his mask. When he died, when he got bitten, he was just so ready. He was so excited. He wasn't thinking. All their displays are shown. My point is the same as yours. I mean, I'm not disagreeing. It's because, like, none of these people are even people in Maximum Overdrive. You don't have a lack of the display. Like, that's the same thing. At the end of Dawn of the Dead, they leave. It's gone. It's whatever. At the end of this movie, they're going to the island. They're on the boat. It's gone. Are they going? Because, you know, know if they even get there, they don't even have any gas in Dawn of the Dead. It's left somewhat open-ended. But where's this island? survive. Six miles off the coast, maybe. Does this weird fry cook even know what he's talking about? I mean, I don't believe a hopeful aspect is going to happen, but I still have. Lighted at the end, though. They shut down the UFO. This is there. My point is diversity. No one learns a goddamn thing other than survive. And in Dawn of the Dead, they go through many different variations of human emotion. Fran doesn't even know she wants to keep the baby and ultimately decides to keep it. Peter is a strong character. By the end, he's a very weak character. Um, oh, I disagree same- with that assessment. I think he's stronger by the end than he was at the beginning because he came to terms with who he was, that he realized that there is an infinite, uh, dismal nature to this world and he might not he survive. He kills himself and then he, at he the doesn't. last moment, goes, oh, maybe I won't. Because at but the last moment, he realizes that survival is the key. You can give up, but what will that accomplish? At least I can die for something. <laughs> I mean, that was uh, the question asked in Thinner, die clean. You could just die clean. So you have two aspects, die clean or die for something. Anything to maximum overdrive. It's barely telling a story. I am defending a coke-riddled, just bullshit idea. Like a guy me... who's playing with toys and turned out to make something that is somewhat enjoyable toys. on a completely visceral you, you say it so innocently. You're like, oh, no, like Stephen King was probably just looking at some toy trucks and he wrote this story. No, he was no. Millions of dollars. And here's a bunch of special effects. Here's a bunch of trucks. Here's a bunch of actors. Now go play with your fucking toys. And that's what he did. And he played with his toys and he like a child would do, would smash them together and let's just do all this crazy shit. And that's what he did. And I can appreciate the film on that level. But to tell me but it that's has not the any level. sort of glimmer of story to it. I, I just can't agree with that because it has it's the no same story. story though. It, it, it's it, not the same story. Not no. then, despite all these other things, you can say it, it's about consumerism. Every and- Stephen King story, not Dawn of the Dead. This is the same as every Stephen King story. It's just a weaker attempt. You've got this format of a character, even the weak idea. Oh, he was robbing stores before he worked to me. I'm going to call your parole officer. Who the fuck are you going to call? That whole bullshit. It's the same weak idea of characters changing because of forming ideas that have happened before in their life. 
I don't see anybody change at all in that movie. No, nobody changes, but it's the idea behind it. That was the point, that this was one of these long-winded Stephen King things that, again, you know, 17 fucking miles of cocaine behind him, he wanted to make an idea of people changing through their past. And that's what you get, that you've got these people that are married, are married, it's their first day being married, and they're stuck at the place. You've got the old asshole character. You've got uh, Emilio playing the, I I did something wrong, but I need to be forgiven character. And then finally, when it gets to the point... like your absolute point in this movie of like showing who your characters are and developing and the reason to things happening is when they're doing the refill. So everyone comes out and you've got Emilio do this great thing of like, they don't even know what it's like to be tired. They're not even like us. And then it just drops like right there was your glimpse and your hope of being able to say, we created them. They're not like us. There's a difference. There's this whole animosity of the world. And the movie loses and goes into this just, you know, very speed fuel fucking idea and uh, ACDC blasting throughout the entire end. You, keep, you always interrupt me. Because uh, you're going on for 30 minutes about fucking. That's Maximum the point Overdrive. of the show. We're talking about, you know, the goddamn movie. I think it's you Maximum have a lot in with, with Graveyard Shift because you're batshit insane. <laughs> What's your best Stephen King out of this list? What's your boner? Hmm. Out of out of tonight's list, it's uh, not Maximum Overdrive. Well, you have to list them off again. I remember what we've talked about it all. No, we'll start from the beginning. I want your full boner. I want to know what made you the most erect at point. The Tall Grass, Night Flyer, Cujo, 1922, Thinner, The Mangler, Gerald's Game, Graveyard Shift. Cat's Eye, The Dark Half, Cell, Silver Bullet, Sleepwalkers, and Maximum Overdrive. Gerald's Game is the best movie on that list. And then uh, Silver Bullet and Maximum Overdrive tie Mm. for, like, trashy fun. Best movie on the list? Gerald's Game. I will agree with you on that. That is the best movie on the list. Dark Half, Maximum Overdrive. We have one difference. Oh, God. Uh, So Phantoms by... Dean Koontz. What you like that though, right? Phantoms is all right, yeah. I do, yeah. So all in all, Phantoms is the best Stephen King movie. Yeah, check it out. Ooh, and we'll be back soon. We'll be back soon for our spicy, spicy this, episode arc show coming. This isn't the end, and just like you, the audience, I'm pleading, and I wish it was, but it isn't. This is far from the end because Halloween isn't over yet. We have a week left. A week left in October 2019. Hopefully we'll get a new president and uh, a better format of Death by DVD shows. Maybe you can vote for that. I don't know. Oh, we'll never get a better format. This is pretty spicy. We're not growing past this point. Stephen King, out your ass. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. Word, bitch. Phantom's like a mall fucker. Death by DVD was recorded in front of he who walks behind the road. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem.